a thousand years old, and uh, it was written in Latin, and uh, was published in about the 12th century in the Latin form. And of course, when a song is over a thousand years old, people keep adding verses to it, and so you can have a lot of verses to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, but in 18, the 1850s, John Mason Neal, who is a British uh, theologian and a poet and a songwriter, discovered the Latin version in a, in a hymnal that had been published early in the 18th century. And uh, he transcribed it, transposed it, and also uh, translated it into English. And that's the version we have today pretty much, although there are those who have added to it. Uh, but the music is quite a mystery because uh, John Mason Neal did set it to this tune, and he said it was found in an old Latin psalter uh, somewhere, but nobody knew where until this century, uh, well, last century, the 20th century, uh, a doctor of worship and musicology found it in the library in Paris and found that tune, and it dates back to the 15th century as the earliest form of the music that the words are set to. And so it is a very, very old hymn, but it's a very meaningful hymn and song as it describes Emmanuel, God with us. And it was actually used, it called an antiphon, where uh, seven days, eight days before Christmas, uh, they would sing us one song moving up and anticipating Christmas, kind of a portion of the Advent calendar, if you will. And so they would sing this, and uh, they would actually sing it the, the day before Christmas Eve uh, because that was when they would know that God was with them. And uh, so that was one of the uh, traditions of that song. And so we were going to use it as we go back, and it's based basically out of the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, the great missionary prophet of the Old Testament. And we are going to uh, look at a few of those passages on your bulletin insert on the back is a list of the prophetic passages that are found in the book of Isaiah. And uh, he was anticipating the coming of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today we are going to begin, and we're going to begin actually in the book of Matthew. But let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we ask today that you would speak to us as we have come together and we anticipate what you're going to do in each of our lives and Lord, we pray today that we would receive the food of your holy word, that you would take your truth and plant it deep within us, that you would transform us, change us because of this time we are spending in your word with one another, singing praises to your name. And Lord, we thank you that you are in the business of life transformation. And we thank you, Lord, for salvation for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this Christmas season in which we look back uh, to the coming, the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray today that your purposes and all of glory would be uh, fulfilled in each one of our lives to teach us, to guide us, and that uh, your majestic love and authority would flow through us, and that the power of your words that never fail, Lord, would just impress us and change us and prevail even over unbelief. We ask that you'd renew our minds, help us to grasp the heights and the depths of all of your plans for us. And Heavenly Father, may we recognize that your truth is unchanged from the dawn of time, and it echoes down through all of eternity. And by grace, we will stand on your promises, and by faith, uh, Lord, we will live out our lives as you walk with us. And we pray and know that this is your church, and that the church around the world is being built for your glory and for your honor. 
And, Lord, in your sovereign care of all things, you carry us through to completion. I thank you for each one here today, and we thank you for any guests that may be with us. Pray that they would uh, see your blessings also, that each one of us would have eyes to see your blessings this day and in the coming weeks as you give us our days. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, that it is authoritative, trustworthy, authentic to the original manuscripts. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit leads and guides us into truth. And Lord, we pray today that we would be attentive to what you have for us, that you would uh, just teach us today through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the freedom we enjoy to meet here, for this campus existence, Lord, for your sustaining presence through the decades. And Lord, we pray for our president, others in leadership, that they would have a heart to seek your wisdom and not their own. And Lord, thank you for the freedom we do enjoy. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, many who are in oppressive government with oppressive governments or outright persecution we pray this day that they would have great joy because of the lord jesus christ for it's in his powerful name we pray amen and amen in my in-laws family uh, they always celebrated in gift giving on christmas eve i know for some of you that's heretical Uh, But Christmas Eve, I really had to compromise on this one because in my family, my birth family, we always did Christmas morning kind of celebration, but they did Christmas Eve. And in the Christmas Eve gift giving that was done, uh, there was a ceramic bust of the Egyptian queen Nefertiti. The original is in the Berlin Museum, and uh, it's quite beautiful, actually. But this one was a reproduction, supposedly full size or an accurate uh, Uh, a representation of the original sculpture that was done in Egypt a thousand years before the time of Christ. And uh, so this was given one Christmas Eve, and it became a tradition that whoever received it kept it that year and then re-gifted it the following Christmas Eve. And, of course, through the year it would be transformed. One year it had sunglasses and a different hat and, you know, makeup and all all sorts of weird stuff. But uh, everybody knew, tried to avoid the box that had Nefertiti in it because they knew it was being re-gifted, and whoever got it was responsible for her care for the whole year. And so we started calling that, "'Tis the season of re-gifting," actually, and specifically of the bust of Nefertiti. And uh, so that's a hot topic. You know, do you, is, it, is it morally upright to re-gift a gift? You know, is that the question? Are you a re-gifter? Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with this phenomenon, uh, Webster's New Millennium Dictionary offers this helpful definition. Uh, to re-gift is to give an unwanted gift to someone else or to give a gift some, uh, to give as a gift something one previously received as a gift. Uh, regardless, uh, the polls say and the, the surveys say that two out of three people have re-gifted a gift. So all of you who are gifters, you can stand now. We'll identify you right away. But uh, that's what the surveys tell us. But, you know, those things can backfire, especially if uh, you open a gift that you gave your mother-in-law a year ago. You know, that's kind of a hint that she might be a re-gifter. And so some people refer to Christmas as the season of re-gifting, re-gifting, excuse me, and uh, these unfortunate gift exchanges, if you will. And, uh, but yet this one person said, yes, it is the season of regifting. 
And uh, he goes on to describe it. He says he was talking about the mysterious gift that is resurrected every Christmas, presented again and again as if new. Year after year, we reopen the story of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the magi and the star. God is a regifter, he said. The child is the gift. The child, the Christ child, is ever new, and he is always a gift. Every Christmas season, especially as many as I've had, I need to have my mind refreshed with the compelling record of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is so much that is going on, and Jesus' birth and this miraculous uh, incarnation of the God-man, amazing, amazing things. Some Christians talk as though the yearly repetition of Christmas sermons is a problem. I think repetition is strategic and necessary. Think about how you learn things. It is by repetition, it is by exposure again and again. And so hopefully this season, all of us will be open to learning new things, perhaps, about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in a sense, all of the Old Testament funnels toward the incarnation of the Son of God in Bethlehem. All of the Bible is about God's saving purposes, his glory, his goodness, and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ and to the ends of the earth. The Apostle Paul describes the incarnation like this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son in the book of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. If the birth of Christ is a significant, redemptive, historical hinge point, then Christians must never get too far removed from the centrality of that account, the centrality of telling the biblical narrative to others. It is a wonderful thing. Retelling the story of Christ, including his incarnation, is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. Have you ever thought about that? That's why we are called evangelicals. We have the good news. An evangelist is one who spreads the good news. Perhaps you're here today and you just need to hear the voice of God in your life. Perhaps you have never really heard what God is telling you about what he has done and is doing and will do. Or perhaps you've known Christ for many, many years, and yet you've grown deaf to the season, to the words that Christ has for you today. Well, today we come to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And just as an introduction here to Matthew chapter 1, it begins with a genealogy. And typically we skip over genealogy. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, all the begats. Uh, in our modern, more modern translations, it's uh, the father of, the father of, the father of. But Matthew, remember his purpose in writing this gospel. He was writing primarily to a Jewish audience, to a Jewish readership. And to a Jewish readership, he was presenting Jesus of Nazareth as the king of the Jews. It's all about the divinity of Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews, which they'd been anticipating for centuries, this Messiah, this promised one, clear back from Genesis chapter 3. And every year as they celebrated and observed the Passover, it was an anticipation of the rescue, the one who would come to save them from their sins. And so Matthew is building the case right away in verse 1, chapter 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, 
and the son of Abraham. Right away, Matthew goes back to the promises God made to Abraham and also to David called the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, and the Davidic covenant that God would establish his throne, the Davidic throne, and that it would be forever and that this Messiah would come out of that line, that Davidic line, this genealogy. And so he starts listing all of these people. And there are 14 generations from Abraham. He begins with Abraham uh, down to David. Then there are 14 generations from David to the captivity where they were carried off to Babylon. And then 14 more generations after the deportation to Babylon, verse 12, down through verse 16 to the Messiah, to to the person of Jesus Christ. What's interesting about this genealogy is there are a lot of characters that are Uh, listed here, a lot of names that are listed, and four in particular of our great interest to me, and there are four women. There are four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, it's Tamar. Tamar. In verse 5, it's Rahab. In verse 5, it's Ruth. And in verse 6, it's Bathsheba. So you have four women in the the, uh, history of the genealogy of Jesus Christ down to him. And uh, two of those women were prostitutes. One was an immigrant. She was a foreigner. Isn't that interesting? And one was an adulteress. And, of course, David was the adulterer. And so what is the point of all that? The point is is that God's grace overcomes all of the sin and the problems in our lives. He is going to use his people as he sees fit and rescue us from our sins through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he lays this out in verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. If we were to spend some time in this genealogy, you would notice that he goes from the father of the father of the father of, and it changes right here in verse 16, where he says the father of Joseph, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom. By whom is a feminine relative pronoun. Joseph was not his biological father. He was Jesus' legal father, but not the biological father. Mary gave birth to the son. She was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is the God-man. He was not uh, produced through the sinful line of Adam. This is Jesus Christ who is called the Messiah here in verse 16. So he goes on to prove his case. He goes on to start building this case that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the one. And he presents him, beginning in verse 18, as the one who was come in a miraculous fashion. Let me read verses 18, excuse me, through 25 for you. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from the sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she was 
until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Lord, today we pray you just give us uh, insight, that you would just teach us, give us attention, and that we would be changed because of this encounter with your word. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. In chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Matthew, we see various responses to this coming Christ child. We're going to look at Joseph today and his response, but if we were to continue on, we would see the Magi had a response to the Christ child. Uh, Herod the Great had a response. All the city of Jerusalem had a response, and it upset a lot of things. There was something I was reading this week, and psychiatrists, psychologists, medical field call it a normalcy bias, a normalcy bias, and all of us have it. It causes people, especially in crisis, to act as if everything is normal, even though things are far from it. Our brain is predisposed to assume that life will carry on in a very predictable way. When the pattern is broken, it takes a long time for the brain to process the aberration. That is why many people who witness traumatic events report that it felt surreal. And, uh, you know, if you've ever been in a, a dangerous situation where everything slowed down, that is normalcy bias. We, we're trying to adjust what is going on, what is happening. The people and events and circumstances uh, that we see in the Gospels here had the normalcy bias. Who is this one? What is going on? And I'm sure Joseph experienced that. And so it was a magnificent and a great interruption in his life. Now, oftentimes we see interruptions as negative things, and yet God has a grand interruption here, God's startling intervention in the world that Jesus Christ would come in human form. And uh, we see in verses 18 through 25, Joseph's response and some commentary about Joseph himself. It says his birth was as follows, Jesus Christ his birth was as follows. And it says, When Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. It's important to understand Jewish marriage traditions. In this day and age, marriages were typically arranged by the parents or those with authority in their lives. And then they would be arranged and they would be declared husband and wife, but they would not live together for a year. And this was to prove the purity of each one of them, primarily the woman. And after a year, the husband would travel to his wife, his wife parents' home, and they lead her back in a grand procession, and they would start living together. So it was in this year of betrothal that Mary was found to be pregnant. She was found to be expecting a child, which to all the watching masses there in Bethlehem, to all the people, her neighbors, her family, whoever, who didn't understand this, thought that she had been impure, thought that she had violated the marriage covenant with Joseph. And so divine interruptions reveal our character. God dramatically interrupted Joseph's life. Try to put yourself in his sandals when he is, uh, you know, in love with this woman. He is planning on marrying her uh, in, in the fullest sense, even though they are betrothed. Uh, he is anticipating that. And then the worst thing in the world could happen, she is found to be with child. And it tells us here that in verse 18, that this whole child was by the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, it tells us that Joseph was a righteous man. It says, her husband being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Joseph revealed, or it was revealed, God revealed that Joseph was a man of faith, 
Righteousness here does not mean perfect. He was a man. He was a human being like all of us, and he had sin issues because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But righteous means he was an adherent. He was a man of faith. He was concerned about God's character, about God's reputation. Verse uh, Romans 3 tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. In that perfect righteousness, Jesus Christ is the righteousness, 1 John 2, 1. Righteousness is imputed to Christians, Romans chapter 4. Righteousness is a gift of God, Romans 5, 17. But it tells us in verse 19 that he was a compassionate man. He was going to send her away secretly. Why was he going to do that? Because ultimately, she would have been convicted as an adulteress and probably stoned to death. Uh, in the city gate, according to Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 24. And he knew that. He was concerned for her. He had sympathetic consciousness of her distress and a desire to alleviate it. And that's what Joseph was doing. It revealed his character. This problem that he was facing revealed that he was a righteous man and a compassionate man. And those things can reveal our character, these interruptions in our life, whatever that may be, can tell us that. Uh, There is great unexpected things in life. None of us knows what the rest of the day holds, let alone tomorrow or next week. And so we move, in a sense, in the moment. We move in the moment. And many unexpected things can come our way, whatever they may be. I was reading about the ship, the Queen Mary. uh, I think it's still anchored in Long Beach, California. Uh, But when it was retired, it was the largest ocean liner in the world. And it was launched in 1936. It ruled the, the oceans for four decades And in World War II, it was a troop ship, and it serves now as a floating museum and a hotel. And during the restoration of that mighty ocean liner, the three massive smokestacks were taken off to be scraped down and repainted. But as they lowered them onto the deck, they crumbled into dust because during its whole life, those three-quarter-inch steel plates that made up the smokestacks on that ship uh, were all rusted away, and all that was left was 30 coats of paint that had put on them over the years, the steel had rusted away. And so the point is, is when all of the unexpected things come into our lives and scrapes away at our life, do we crumble to dust or do we have substance in our faith? Do we have real substance behind what the exterior looks like? Divine interruptions reveal our character. Verses 20 through 21, they can give us a new perspective. Look again at verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, and here he's commanded, God gives him an option. He gives him his command. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Mary as your wife. This is a new option. And he was going to suppose to continue on and take her as his wife. And why was he to do this? Because he said, For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He has a new understanding. This is not a disaster. This is a divine movement in the lives of Mary and Joseph. And also a new orientation, something that is beyond himself. She will bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Latin name that we have in the New Testament. Uh, The Greek name was Jesus, Jesus. And uh, the Hebrew name was Yeshua, which is we translate as Joshua. And it literally means Yahweh saves or God's proper name. God himself saves. And so Jesus' name is appropriate. And the angel tells him to name him Jesus. So these interruptions reveal our character, give us a new perspective. 
and have providential purpose in verses 22 through 23. God is fulfilling his plan. Look at verse 22. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord. All of this took place. Here's a declaration that what was said 750 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah, the passage that Chalky read for us out of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, was being fulfilled. This was the fulfillment of what Isaiah had said, fulfilled this plan. All of this took place. Sometimes we think life seems so much out of control and so unanticipated and adverse and difficult, and yet all things are under the sovereign care of God. We don't understand all. It doesn't mean we understand those things, but we can trust and rest in his character. And this sensational interruption in verse 23, where the quote comes right out of Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with that child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. J.I. Packer, who is a theologian, wrote that the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation, unquote. Uh, There was a time I was reading about during the Nazi persecution of the Jews in Poland, uh, just before the World War, before World War II started, that an old Jewish cemetery keeper came into the cemetery one morning and found that during the night, a woman had crept into an open grave and had given birth to a son. And, he had, and she had then had died. He found this child and he said to himself and to others about it, he said, this must be the Messiah, for only the Messiah would choose to be born in a grave. Well, it wasn't the Messiah, for the child died before noon of the day, but the truth that which the cemetery keeper spoke is absolutely accurate. Only the Messiah of God could choose to be born in a grave. Only a God who loves as God loves could come into the midst of all the pain of life, all of the death, and bring us grace, the unmerited favor of what he does. So divine interruptions have providential purpose, and divine interruptions move us beyond our capabilities. In verses 24 through 25, We see here that Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. He actually violated the custom. He took her as his wife early uh, to take away the problem that, uh, that they could see in their community. And he surrendered his own desires in that. He kept her as a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. Matthew is good at reaching out to Jewish people and to the Hebrew mindset. He uses extensive quotes as we go through Matthew out of the Old Testament, uh, 53 direct quotes out of the Old Testament, many allusions, and he uh, quotes out of 25 of the 39 Old Testament books. Clearly, Matthew was determined to bridge the gap between the Old Testament and what is known as the New Testament. He was concerned that the news of Jesus Christ go forth as king of all things. And it comes out of Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself would give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Those 700 years before the birth of the Christ child in Bethlehem, the Jewish people were looking forward to this coming Messiah. And the prophet Isaiah wrote about this incarnation. And the prophet, remember, is foretelling and forthtelling. An Old Testament prophet spoke the very words of God, and he could not see all things, but he saw what God wanted him to convey. 
Slowly but surely, Isaiah painted for us a picture of Jesus, of Bethlehem, and of Christmas. Judah's king Ahaz, in the double reference, Judah threatened by a coalition of Israel and Syria, her enemies, and Isaiah brings a message of comfort to King Ahaz in that day. But also it had a double meaning. It meant that the real Messiah was coming, and this was a prophecy to it. The announcement of a sign, the awesome miracle that took place, the appointed name of the Messiah. Christ came not only to be Emmanuel, God with us, but even in a more personal way, God in us, Jesus Christ who indwells us, who lives within us in the power of his Holy Spirit. Emmanuel, God with us in our nature, in our sorrow, in our life work, in our, in our difficulties, in our grave, and now with us, whether, and, or rather we with him in resurrection, ascension, triumph, and second advent splendor. Author, Pastor Leith Erickson, or excuse me, Leith Anderson writes these words. He says, several years ago, I was visiting Manila and was taken of all places to the Manila garbage dump and saw something beyond belief. Tens of thousands of people make their homes on that dump site. They've constructed shacks out of the things other people have thrown away. They've sent their children out every morning to scavenge for food out of the garbage so they can have family meals. People have been born and grown up there on that garbage dump. They have had their families, their children, their shacks, their garbage to eat, finishing out their lives and died there without going anywhere else, even into the city of Manila. It is an astonishing thing, Anderson writes. But Americans also live on a garbage dump, he says. They are all they are missionaries, Christians who have chosen to leave their own country and communicate the love of Jesus Christ to people who other eyes would never hear it. That is amazing to me. People would leave uh, what we have to go and live on a garbage dump. Amazing, but not as amazing as the journey from heaven to earth. They chose to intervene and interrupt the lives of the Manila garbage dump people. But the Son of God made that journey. He knew what it was he was doing. He knew where he was going. He knew what the sacrifice would be. He journeyed from heaven to earth on a mission to save you and I. And that's the amazing thing. The events and circumstances of our lives are in the hand of a holy God. In fact, in Psalms, it tells us, my times are in your hands. The angel told Joseph to name the baby Jesus because he will save their people from his sin, from their sins. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, the angel, the angel announced to the shepherds, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord. Uh, we will never understand who Jesus is until you realize that he came to save you from your sins. That is why he lived. That is why he died. That's why he rose again from the dead. He came to seek and save the lost, and he saves all who believe in him. You know, if your greatest need would have been an education, uh, God would have sent you a teacher. If your greatest need had been money, God would have sent you a banker. If your greatest need had been advice, God would have sent you a counselor. If your greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent you an entertainer. But since our greatest need was forgiveness of sins, God sent a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus. He is Christ the Lord, the Son of God, who came from heaven to earth. And so this Christmas, as we celebrate, as we are busy with preparations and maybe with lots of things going on, obligations, uh, one author said, organized exuberance. Uh, these words remind us that as Christians, we are to long for another country, one that the coming Messiah wipes all tears away, 
and the sorrowing cast down the mighty from their thrones. And he tells us that he is providing and preparing a place for us. And we say amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and for your passage. Thank you for Joseph, a character often overlooked in Scripture. And yet, Lord, uh, you have given a record of him to us. And we thank you that he was a compassionate, that he was righteous, that he fulfilled and did what you had called him to. And, Lord, for each one of us, uh, you are calling us to a life of faithfulness, a life of uh, observance and worship of you, and may we be responsive to that. In Jesus' name, amen. The men would come up. We're going to help serve the Lord's table. As we come today to the Lord's table, we practice uh, the participation together of the bread and the cup. And the central passage given for us, the instruction to the church, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul instructs the church at Corinth about uh, observing the Lord's table because they were in the habit of abusing uh, this great privilege. And Paul writes there that he received from the Lord that which he delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he's betrayed took bread. And, of course, he's looking back to the account in Luke chapter 22, uh, in that last Passover meal where Jesus gathers his close disciples together and uh, to observe the Passover and fulfilling that. And Jesus was the fulfillment of the Israel's longing and the observance of the Passover. And so he applies new meaning to the Passover feast and to the meal as they no longer anticipate the coming of the Messiah. He is here. And we look back 20 centuries and we recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ has come. And so we observe this as a remembrance. Twice in this passage, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And again, I am personally challenged every month as we come up to the first Sunday. What do I remember? What do I remember about Jesus Christ? And so I challenge you. What do you remember? What is the story in your life that God has done, that the Lord Jesus Christ has been faithful, that he has rescued you from salvation? Some of us go back uh, maybe many years to times when we were children, maybe at vacation Bible school, Sunday school, somewhere our parents or a loved one shared the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with us. Others, like myself, were adults when our eyes were open to the truth of believing in Jesus for eternal life, for everlasting life. And so today, this is a memorial time for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would just uh, exhort you not to partake because these elements do not convey any grace or any special meaning. Uh, they are simply for those of us who are believers that we would remember what Jesus Christ has done. And these are physical remembers just to help us to remember that and to pause and think about that. And so it tells us there, uh, it tells us that Jesus gave thanks and then they distributed the bread. I'm going to ask uh, Tom Byerman to give thanks for the bread this morning. <laughs> 